The reading is from Isaiah 61, verses 10 through chapter 62, verse 3. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and as a garden causes what is sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest, until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication, and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Today's gospel reading is from Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 40. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male shall be designated as holy to the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice according to what is stated in the law of the Lord a pair of turtle doves, or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, now you are dismissing your servant in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And the child's father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, This child is destined for the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be opposed so that the inner thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then, as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple but worshiped there with fasting and prayer, night and day. At that moment, she came and began to praise God and to speak about the child to all who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had finished everything required by the law of the Lord, 
they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Merry Christmas. Thanks to all who were able to join us on Christmas Eve for our special service of lessons and carols. I'd love to give a, a special shout out and thank you to all of the artists and musicians and readers who contributed to that service. Uh, and in particular, just a big shout out and thank you to Christopher McDonald, who not only leads our music, but works tirelessly behind the scenes every week to pull our worship services together and get the videos put together, and, uh, and, and especially this time for the special service of lessons and carols. Uh, a lot of hours went into that. So a big thank you to Christopher and the whole team uh, for leading us so well. And if you weren't able to catch that service and join us on Christmas Eve, I would invite you to go check it out just whenever you can. You can find it on our YouTube channel. Uh, and in my own personal opinion, that's one of my very favorite services of every year and, uh, and this year as well in our special circumstances of being the scattered church in this COVID lockdown era. Uh, it's a, it's a, beautiful, a beautiful service uh, and I commend it to you. Now, as we turn our attention uh, to reflecting on these scripture passages, would you join me in prayer? Our gracious God, we need you. And we ask that you would be with us now as we sit with your scriptures and we reflect on the joy and the mystery of Christmas. That you came down and came to live among us as one of us. Would you be near to us this morning uh, and dawn in our darkness, so to speak, that we may behold your glory more clearly and rejoice in you more fully. Would you touch our lives and change us, we ask, through Christ our Lord, amen. Christmas is a time for rejoicing. And when I say that, I certainly don't mean to say that what you should be feeling right now is happy and not sad. I don't mean that at all. For some, the holidays are the, quote, most wonderful time of the year. Yet for many others, this is the hardest time of the year, isn't it? Especially for those who have lost loved ones and feel that loss more acutely this time of year, every year. And those who are grieving particular losses or disappointments uh, that have been fresh here in 2020. This year has brought more of that than usual, hasn't it? As COVID has claimed nearly one and a half million lives worldwide, brought economic hardship to so many and disrupted life as we know it in ways that really would have been unimaginable to us only a year ago. This feels more like a, a time to mourn than a time to dance in many ways. And of course, it is a time to mourn. The losses are real and grievous. It is a time to mourn. But it's also a time to rejoice and that's what makes the joy of Christmas something that we so desperately need and something that is so irrepressibly powerful in our lives and in the world. Because joy, unlike other more superficial versions of happiness, does not depend upon the absence of sorrow or sadness, 
but only on the presence of God who meets us in the midst of it. And that's exactly what we celebrate at Christmas, that God in his infinite love and wisdom and mercy came to earth to join us fully in our experience of human life on earth, all of it, birth, growth, learning, joy, pain, stub toes and splinters and scabby knees and love and heartbreak, loneliness, friendship, hunger, satisfaction, admiration, rejection, betrayal, even police brutality, unjust conviction and execution. God came down to us to go through all of that with us in order to put humanity and all of creation on his back and carry us through the valley of death's shadow toward a horizon far more glorious and joyful than that of the grave. And that's the mystery that we celebrate at Christmas. That almighty God whose power upholds all things came to us as this Christ child, baby Jesus, a little guy who couldn't even hold up his own head and whose life was utterly dependent upon his mother's nurture. In Jesus, God became vulnerable with us and for us. He became Emmanuel. In our gospel reading this morning, Luke tells the story of Joseph and Mary bringing this child, Jesus, to the temple to present him to the Lord in keeping with the Jewish law. And we see these two faithful elderly people, Simeon and Anna, rejoicing and giving thanks to God when they encounter Jesus. Luke portrays both Simeon and Anna as prophetic figures, individuals whom the Holy Spirit has given discernment and wisdom, and they're regulars at the temple, frequently there serving and praying. And on this particular day, when Jesus is presented, they're in the right place at the right time, so to speak, to meet their long-awaited Messiah, the one Simeon calls the consolation of Israel. And this moment of joy, this celebration of, of what Simeon describes as light for revelation to the Gentiles, it erupts in the context of suffering and darkness, both in the individual lives of the characters in this story and also in the broader societal situation. You see, the people of Israel at this time were living under the cruel and exploitative tyranny of the occupying Roman Empire. Jesus was born into these dark times. And not only that, but there are these significant clues in the story that the characters that we meet here, they have their own hardships that they're going through. The offering of turtle doves or pigeons that we see named here in this story, it, th that's a signal that Joseph and Mary are poor. The offering of turtle doves or pigeons is a, is a provision granted by the law. It's a small offering that poor people can bring, those who can't afford to sacrifice a larger animal. Joseph and Mary are poor. Jesus, therefore, by extension, is poor. And then Simeon, he's described as this old man who has been yearning for the consolation of Israel. This man who, despite the grim circumstances of Roman rule, has not lost sight of God's promise and has remained faithful to God's ways. 
And then we see Anna, the prophetess. She's an elderly widow who is fasting. A sign of bereavement, perhaps. And certainly a countercultural practice that marks her as one who is actively lamenting and waiting for God's deliverance. The rejoicers in this story are sufferers. Their circumstances are hard, and you wouldn't necessarily recognize them as people ready to rejoice if you were simply looking at their lives from an outside perspective. And that's important. That's important for us. Their Christmas joy is not sentimentalism. Anna, Simeon, Joseph, Mary, they aren't doing the first century equivalent of simply having a wonderful Christmas time by drowning out their world's cares with Hallmark Channel movies and eggnog and Bing Crosby or Mariah Carey or Pentatonix or Sufjan Stevens or Mannheim Steamroller or whatever your cup of tea is, that whatever your holiday playlist holds. The joy of Mary and Joseph and Simeon and Anna is something far more robust and far more complicated and powerful than that. It's a joy that commingles with sorrow, even as it anticipates further hardship, the rising and falling of many that Simeon describes of Jesus's destiny. And as we continue to read the gospel stories forward into Jesus's adult life, what we see is that Jesus grows up to be both a man of sorrows and a man of joy. As the writer of Hebrews describes Jesus, it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross even as he despised its shame. Really throughout all the scriptures, we see rejoicing as this major theme of life with God and life in Christ. The apostle Paul describes joy as a fruit of the spirit. Jesus tells his disciples that the reason he's teaching him the things that he's teaching him is that so that their joy may be complete. James in the New Testament writes about how the joy of Christ is always available to us, even in our suffering. And then in some of the pastoral letters of the New Testament, rejoice is given as more of an instruction than a hopeful wish. To the Philippians, the apostle Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice joy. It's not viewed there as some emotion that may or may not emerge, but as a kind of virtue almost to be enacted by faith. And rejoicing isn't just a suggestion for Paul, it's a command. It's one of those commands that's sort of like when you've been working tirelessly around the house, maybe getting the house ready for guests in an era when we did things like that, or preparing a meal for others, and someone comes alongside you seeing how hard you've been working and just says, you know, go sit down. Nope, go sit down. Put your feet up. You've done enough. It's time to rest. You know, in the moment that someone says that to you, you might bristle at it because, you know, you're in busy body mode and you don't want to stop and you don't really like being told what to do. But you also recognize that that command is coming from a place of love, right? It's intended for your good. It's even grounded in appreciation for what you've been doing. And not only that, but you can recognize truth in it too, right? That if you do in fact heed the advice and go sit down and rest and put your feet up, that it will be good for you. The command to rejoice is a command sort of like that. 
It comes from a place of love. It's full of truth. It's intended for your good. And the Apostle Paul, when he says to the Philippian people, you know, rejoice always. I will say again, rejoice. He's not saying put on a happy face and ignore your sorrow, but rather rejoice even in the midst of your sorrow because God is with you. His promise endures. Your suffering is not in vain. You are God's beloved child, engaged to be his forever and destined for the flourishing and wholeness of everlasting life for which you were made. No darkness that today holds can overcome the light of his presence and the glory of your life. So do yourself and everyone else a favor and rejoice because it's good for you and there's much truth in your rejoicing. This past week, my family uh, had a sort of grief, joy, hybrid moment. Uh, last Tuesday, we celebrated the long-awaited adoption of my sister-in-law's former foster daughter, now full-fledged daughter. My kids have a cousin. Bonnie and I now have a niece for the first time. It was a day of great rejoicing and we couldn't be there. They're all in Atlanta. We were all in Philadelphia. COVID is raging. We so wanted to be there. So wanted to be there. We had planned to be there, but we couldn't. And we wept. We've been feeling the loss all week. And I know many of you have experienced such disappointments and losses this year as well. Some of them have been truly tragic. And the call to rejoice might feel like a tall order. Or maybe for some it feels impossible. But I think this other passage that we just read as well, the one from the prophet Isaiah, uh, is helpful for us as we think about what it means to take up the work of rejoicing even in these hard moments. This is a text that Christians all around the world are reading today, a passage that's often used in the church on the first Sunday after Christmas. And it begins with this simple statement, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord my soul shall exalt in God. Why? Why is it that we see this rejoicing break out that the prophet describes? Three reasons that he shows us. The first one is because of what God has done. In verse 10, we get this poetic description of God's deliverance of his people from exile. And then the second reason is because of what God will do. In verse 11, we see this description of God's restoration of his people in the future. And then lastly, the rejoicing is because of whom we will be. In chapter 62, verses 2 and 3, called by a new name, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. Remembrance and hope are the twin reasons for our joy. Remembering what God has done and hoping in what God has promised to do. And the fruit of our rejoicing we see is nothing less than becoming a beacon of hope and joy for this weary world that is in need of good news, good news that is real and robust enough to lift us even in our sorrows. In verse one, the prophet says, for Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest 
until her vindication shines out like the dawn and her salvation like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication and all the kings your glory. You know, we opened this morning by reflecting on Esau Macaulay's words as he said that the very telling of the Christmas story is an act of resistance. And here in the prophet Isaiah and in the gospel of Luke, we see that our rejoicing in Christ is similarly an act of resistance. It's a resistance to the pull of our sorrows that threaten to drag us into despair. It's resisting the temptations that offer us cheap and easy escape routes out of the pain and into relative comfort. It's resisting all the counterfeit hopes that vie with Jesus for our allegiance and our desire. And it's resisting the narratives that our present circumstances seem to tell about our lives that runs contrary to the good news of Jesus. The narratives that say that what speak most truly and definitively about who we are are our triumphs or our tragedies, our suffering or our sin, our loneliness or lack of what we need or desire. Rejoicing in Christ is this discipline of resistance that says no to all these other voices and all those other authorities and instead says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, the one who has joined us in our sorrow so that we may also join him in the fullness of joy in his kingdom. This Christmas season, please know this, this joy that is in Christ, it is for you. It is for you who remember the love of God which has come down at Christmas, this light of God that has dawned in Christ Look to him in hope. This is the good news. This is what we remember. This is the great mystery of the love of God that we celebrate at Christmas, and this is for you. God is with you, God loves you, and he will never let you go. Beloved, rejoice in Christ. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.